This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to Leadership in Action. This is Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. This is Channel 132. I'm Jeff Klein, Executive Director of the Ann and John McNulty Leadership Program here at Wharton, and I am delighted to be here in the studio with my good buddies, Ann Greenhall and Mike Hussein. Hello, Jeff. Hi there, Jeff. How are <laughs> the you? The band is back. Yeah, yeah we, we were only on a brief hiatus. Uh, we've got a pretty interesting show tonight. The CEO of the third largest nonprofit healthcare system in the United States. There's Kaiser, there's Ascension, and then there is Providence St. Joseph Health, which is a $25 billion nonprofit healthcare organization. Um, our guest is also a physician who says he knew he wanted to be a doctor at 16. He must be a longtime listener to the show and <laughs> know that we were going to ask him that. Uh, and, and he knew that because he entered a program called Doctors of Tomorrow, spent a summer working with an orthopedic surgeon. I would like to welcome Rod Hockman to the program. How, how are you, doctor? Oh, thank you so much. I, I was enjoying your conversation. <laughs> and uh, let's, let's see how I do on that. But I, you know, I, I think you nailed it. And particularly thinking about health care in, in the midst of all the chaos that's going on in Washington, those of us in healthcare are trying to figure out how do we take care of the American population, do it well, when uh, every day it's something new that's out there. And uh, it's been uh, kind of trying for us in healthcare, but uh, we're, we're doing our best. But we'd love to explore some of those, those issues with you today. All right, that, that's, that's fantastic. And, and if I can, Dr. Hockman, what I'd like to do is just say a couple words about you here. Um, as I mentioned in the, the introduction, you are the president and CEO of Providence St. Joseph Health, which is a $25 billion nonprofit healthcare organization. Um, it's the parent to a diverse family of organizations that have served the Western United States for more than 160 years. And um, you are the recipient of the 2017 Partners in Care Foundation Visions and Excellence in Healthcare Leadership Award. Um, ranked recently as uh, one of the most influential physician executives and one of the most influential people in healthcare by Modern Healthcare. You're a fellow of the American College of Physicians and a fellow of the American College of Rheumatology uh, and a proud recipient of your medical mm -hmm. degree from Boston University. Does that, does that sound like you? <laughs> Relatively speaking. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's, that's a good summary. I, you know, I have, I have to check it out with my wife and my kids. See what else they could add to that? Yeah. But, well, uh, and it, if you want them to call in live, just let them know it's eight four four Wharton. We'll take any of their additional uh, additional descriptors. Sure. I mean, I think one of the things in the description. We're 165 years old. We're a $25 billion organization. Both we were started 165 years ago by a group of women. Mm -hmm. So when I'm on Wall Street and you know we, we're talking to the bondholders, I say name another company that's 165 years old that's worth 25 billion that was started by a group of women, mm. and that usually stops them in their tracks. Mm. So if a lot of folks don't feel women can get things done and make things happen in the business world, uh, 
you know, our founders are uh, a living legacy to that. And, uh, you know, it's grown into one of the largest health systems in the country and uh, at the same time is able to do about a, we did about a billion and a half of free care and uh, community benefit in the communities we serve in the western United States. So it's not bad. And now, Rob, one of our um, one of our classic opening questions here uh, was something that that our producer had actually already sent to us in uh, in your bio, and and we'll typically ask people to think back to their their teenage years and and um, ask them what they thought they would end up doing. Um, but but what we have from from Patty and Jeff is. At 16, you entered a program called Doctors of Tomorrow, and the path became pretty clear for you. Would you tell us a little bit about oh, that? Absolutely. So both of my parents, I'm a first-generation American. They're both immigrants to this country. And for most uh, immigrant parents that came to New York, you had two choices in your career. You could either become a doctor or a lawyer. Mm-hmm. And I, I took the doctor's side. But uh, we had a great program, you know, at, for high school students to spend... Uh, a whole summer uh, with a, a physician, and this happened to be an orthopedic surgeon. This was back in a different era, so uh, we worked together, and I was assisting in the OR, really uh, getting uh, kind of knee-deep into everything that physicians do. And after that summer, I said, okay, I know what I want to do for the rest of my life. And from there, I, um, I was a six-year med at Boston University, which means you get accepted to med school from high school. Uh, you finish undergraduate in two years and then go directly into med school. And wow. uh, it's now been 40 years that I've been a physician since I graduated. And I kid people, I've also been married for 40 years. And <laughs> for most physicians, the two don't necessarily go together. But uh, I've, I've succeeded in both. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah, really. And, and Rod, if I can, what, um, what, what drew you to medicine what what drew you to the the profession why why is it that you knew so i i you know two things one is you know the old cliche but the cliche really works is that it's amazing to help people at their greatest need and you know i i don't think there are many other professions you know we talk a lot about the health profession but i still get notes from patients that i saw 20 or 30 years ago uh so what other field can you be in where you have that close personal relationship with families and individuals? And then on the other side of it, you know, the science of healthcare. if you think about where we've gone in 40 years, uh, when I was uh, beginning medical school, we had no idea about the genome. And if you think about what we're doing today, the science is also, you know, very exciting. So if you can apply science to really helping individuals, you can't get any better than that. Hmm. Rod, it's a pleasure to have a chance to speak with you. I'm curious about your education at Boston University. You said it was a six-year program, and you could enter uh, from high school and essentially take a medical school track, so undergrad in two years and then four years um, of graduate school. Uh, along that path, um, is there a major or, you know, as a, what was the undergraduate experience like? So the undergraduate experience had to be something a major in anything but the sciences. Really? So I was a sociology major. Ah. And your science courses were restricted to the usual suspects, organic chem, physical chemistry, and physics, and whatnot. But everything else in your curriculum had to be taken outside of the sciences. 
so we had French majors, we had philosophy majors, and I think it really made a difference in creating what I think are better physicians. Uh, so because you're really, you know, you, you have to really actually prove that you could uh, have expertise outside of the sciences. Hmm. And then when you were in the medical track, am I right in thinking rheumatology? Tell me a little bit about your choice along so, the way. So what happens to most doctors is everyone knows. So you finish medical school and you go through this endearing process called the match. Where yes. on one day every hospital and every to-be doctor uh, finds out where they're going to go and be a physician. So I spent three years doing internal medicine at what's now the Beth Israel Deaconess Hospital in Boston, and then uh, decided after that to specialize, and I did uh, two years in immunology and rheumatology at uh, Dartmouth in uh, New Hampshire. Okay, and say just a little bit why those choices. Well, you know, it's funny, you and, uh, you know, the physicians out there that are listening to this, you decide pretty quickly whether you're going to be a, a surgeon or a medical doctor. And you could just ask my, my wife at how, how good I was at tying knots, and she said, <laughs> I think medicine's better for you. Um, but I, I like that part of it. I love talking to patients. I love the complexity of illnesses and uh, being a real physician where, you could take care of everyone, the whole person. Rheumatology or immunology really is some of the most fascinating diseases that uh, uh, people uh, experience, and it's also taking care of people for uh, their uh, their whole life. I generally uh, treated chronic diseases that patients had uh, throughout their life, and I, as a rheumatologist. I was well-suited to go into administration because I was used to treating chronic disease, and administratum is a chronic disease that never gets better. <laughs> so I had the ter perfect temperament as a rheumatologist. But uh, I still have my license in Virginia um, uh, and uh, still enjoy, when given the opportunity, to make rounds with some of the physicians in our, uh, in our hospitals. Right. Great to have you on the program. And I'm going to go back to a number that Jeff mentioned at the outset, which is that you pre preside over a system that's a $25 billion yeah. nonprofit healthcare organization. And that, that number really uh, made me pause because if I do the math, that means you're spending about $2 billion a month or about $500 million per week. Yeah. So when you get up in the morning, what's it like to spend uh, $100 million that day and the day after and then beyond? So, uh, you, know, it's, 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 you know, when you think about scale, it's, uh, it's, it's almost uh, uh, overwhelming to think about it. And there are two ways to think about it. I think when I wake up, when I first wake up in the morning, I think about we're probably going to operate on 2,000 people today. We're going to deliver several hundreds of babies across the western United States. We're going to do several thousand hospital visits, home visits. And the thing that I think about is, you know, if you're that patient or family, you've got to get it right every time. Mm -hmm. And they talk about the airline industry having to get takeoffs and landing and getting it right every time. Because for every one of those patients and families, this is the most important event in their lives. And I, I know we can all relate to that because we've either been in the hospital ourselves or in a clinic with our moms or dads or kids. That time that you're there uh, is the most critical a lot of times in, in terms of what's happening to you. So I, always, I worry first about are we getting it right with everyone? And then 
Second, I figure out, do we have enough cash to pay the bills and do, do mm-hmm. what we need to do and make all of that work? And um, the good news is that we've been fairly successful at doing both of those things. Uh, but it's, it's, it's really the scale. And the question that I often get is, how do you lead a $25 billion organization with 118,000 people? That's my next question. Exactly. Funny <laughs> <laughs> you should say. You really? got that one. To, you know, and, the answer is really simple. Yeah. I think it fits perfectly with what we're talking about. Is I, I always say you, you hire great leaders, and then the second thing you do is get out of their way. <laughs> and the, what the success of our organization has been that we've we've gone out and hired some of the best leaders in the country. And the key is that we've let them do what they need to do and make that work. And that's the only way you could get at scale. And what we've done in healthcare is decided that um, the only way we're going to fix healthcare is to get leaders that are from outside of healthcare. Yeah, Ron, I know uh, a statistic somewhere in the commentary about you that something like a third of the people that you bring in do come in from outside of healthcare, from Amazon, from Google, and elsewhere. And that's really interesting because uh, it is a, to me it was a statement that you're willing to defy the norms of the field. I think traditionally hospitals have insisted that people are in healthcare professionally; they have the right degrees. It sounds like you have uh, some time ago decided that that as it's a norm, it's good, but it's also preventing maybe some of the innovativeness that you'd like to see or some of the delivery mechanisms you'd like to bring in. So pick, pick up on that if you would. Sure, absolutely. I think, you know, healthcare is in a transformational point. Just the way retail is going through this enormous change, uh, healthcare is now becoming less centralized. It's becoming more outpatient oriented. Technology, you know, the, the two last mm. polls out, holdouts to digital technology have been healthcare and higher education. <laughs> <laughs> right? And, I was about to say that. You, yeah. right? you nailed it. The revolution it. is here, right? Yeah. I mean, we are really, uh, whether you're at Wharton or whether you're at uh, uh, Harvard or whether you're at uh, Mass General or anywhere else, we're having to deal with the digital revolution in a way that we didn't have to before. So that means for us, electronic health records. Uh, I want to have my information on my iPhone. I want to make my appointments. I want to see my doctor when I can see my doctor. I want to schedule my own appointments. So the question is, is how do you do this digital transformation with just mm. the same old people that you've had? So we said we need some folks from Amazon and Microsoft and T-Mobile to really help us how to do it. And what we found is when you put healthcare people together with mm. tech people, that's where magic occurs. Because we kind of teach each other what we should know. So we've done some incredibly innovative things on the technology side with some of the folks that we've brought in. And it's made, I think, really helped our transformation accelerate. And, Rod, I'd be curious, as, as you think about, you know, forming a team like that, bringing together people from different backgrounds, um, different, you know, academic disciplines, certainly different industries, yeah. Are there a, are there a set of principles? Are there a set of of tips that you would have for you know how you 
you know, for lack of a better word here, the the academic uh, phrase sometimes is create the container for the group to do its work. Right. So there's two parts to it. One, I would say a lot of people have been incredulous at how we could get someone from Amazon to come work for this 165-year-old organization that hasn't been necessarily known all of its life for a lot of innovation. And guess what? We're not going to pay you as much as you're making at Amazon or Microsoft. The trick for us has been around our mission mm-hmm. and what we do. And I think a lot of times we undersell that. And people have said, I want to, you know, I've made my career at Microsoft or Amazon. Now I want to really do something that's going to make a difference out there. And they're coming to us because of that. So I think the commitment to the mission and the commitment to values are incredibly important to us. Uh, we feel we can teach anyone health care, but it's the commitment to they understand who we are, what we are, and why we do it. If we have that, then I think we're in a great place. Uh, and then once they're with us, my deal with the people we have is to give you the room to do what we wanted you to be brought into the organization to do. So I really feel that Here's what we're trying to accomplish. Here's somewhat what the boundaries are, but we really want you to go out and kind of reinvent this for us. So I I think people have loved that degree of freedom coming into an organization. Right, and that that certainly echoes back to your one of your opening statements about hiring great leaders and then you know getting out of their way. I think what what we'll do here, if we can, is um, we're going to need to take a short break uh, in just a, a couple seconds here. And, and when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Dr. Rod Hockman, who's the president and CEO of Providence St. Joseph Health, $25 billion nonprofit healthcare organization. And, and I, I think specifically, we'd like to pick up a little bit, Rod, about your transition, you know, from medicine into this kind of executive leadership and, and the extent to which, you know, you, you still have a, a foot in both worlds um, and, and what you learned along the way and how you did it. So uh, for our listeners, I'll remind you that I'm Jeff Klein and I'm here with Mike Yuseem and Ann Greenhall. You're listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School Sirius XM 132. Rod, before the break, we had we were getting into this question of how do you run a large twenty-five billion dollar healthcare organization. We also talked about um, you know the the very very early days of your career, your your time at Boston University, and your training as a doctor. Um, and I'm wondering when when the transition started for you. Um, you know, still obviously a, a practicing doctor, but. Um, starting to take on more organizational, executive kind of leadership roles. Sure, sure. As, as all these things happen, so many of our careers are determined by circumstance. So when I, I started at the Guthrie Clinic in northern Pennsylvania, it's a multi-specialty group of 250 physicians. And, you know, I took the attitude that I take on any job that uh, no one wanted. You know, it's kind of like being uh, working with the medical students up in Syracuse. And when you're driving in the middle of a snowstorm, you realized why you got that job. No one else wanted it. Uh, but what ended up happening to me, you know, in terms of the leadership, we had a very uh, democratic way of selecting board members. Uh, you basically got one vote for every year that you were a physician at the clinic. 
So guess what? The uh, the junior senators didn't get a lot of <laughs> lot of play. Right. But they decided that they needed one of the young uh, physicians that were at the clinic to be on the board. And I got selected for that. And, you know, it's just those those opportunities where being on the board of of that group at a pretty early age in my career, I kind of realized that the decisions we were making were going to make a difference for all of our patients and for um, all of our physicians. And I said, this is pretty good. Mm-hmm. So I did that. I, you know, I spent my time on the board. I was still practicing, did a lot of administrative leadership roles there and kind of enjoyed doing that and said, you know, this, this, this can work for me. Uh, then I became the chairman of medicine uh, in Cincinnati at uh, the Christ Hospital. And about two months into that job, which I loved that job, my boss came into me and said to me, God, Rod, guess what? We're merging with the university. I got a new job for you. And <laughs> you know, there you go. And I think you really learn by doing. Mm-hmm. And um, for me, uh, having physicians in prominent roles in healthcare administration, other than at academic health centers, was not the tried and true thing. It was a proverbial glass ceiling for doctors in non-academic centers to become executives. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I kind of worked my way through it again, continuing to see patients, but having more and more uh, uh, responsibilities for our health plan, for a number of other parts of the health system. Uh, went to Virginia and uh, became one of the executive vice presidents and ran a number of the hospitals. So I would say my career as I've ascended, uh, when I'm meeting with a lot of my people, I've done all of their jobs at one point mm-hmm. in my career, and it's been incredibly valuable. And, and Rod, I wonder, as, as you look back, um, maybe a, a two-part question, part one would be, what you know? What is a way in which your medical training served you uh, as an organizational leader? And then the the flip side, part two, would be what what's something new you had to learn in terms of of a skill as you came into these uh, executive roles? So I would say the problem that most physician executives have is uh, they're used to giving orders and having everyone carry them out. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's a little bit different world when you're in the business world. You know, it doesn't necessarily work that way. And uh, so I think for a lot of physicians, it's hard to get used to more of that. And I, I think most physicians are changing now, but to get into that more team play in terms of how decisions are made and how you do your work. The good side of being trained uh, as a uh, as a physician is you can get by in very little sleep uh, you're used to making decisions uh, and I think you know for a lot of folks when you're making life and death decisions for for patients uh, the stress sometimes of the bus- business decisions just aren't, aren't as hard mm-hmm. uh, so they really toughen you up to be able to kind of deal with those types of issues uh, because you've dealt with them all throughout your career. So I think it's almost taking the best of both. Um, and I think, again, as a rheumatologist who spent a lot of time talking with patients and everything else, you're a little bit more adaptive than I may generalize if I was a uh, cardiothoracic surgeon. Rod, if I could follow up on that, I'm, I'm wondering if part of your medical education is also about... Um, 
framing problems, identifying what the issue is, analyzing why, thinking about next steps. Did that, that part of your education serve you? I, I think you've nailed it. Uh, it's, a, it's a great construct for kind of looking at a problem, looking at what the differential diagnosis could be, what are the possible solutions. Mm-hmm. It's pretty much your whole day when you're in clinical practice is, is set up that way. And you can't avoid, uh, you know, there's no such thing as a non-decision in clinical practice. You've got to be able to move. Right. So it really trains you to do that, to think analytically. You know, it has to be data-driven. Uh, and so I think all of those aspects are incredibly helpful mm-hmm. uh, on the business side. And so uh, why is it, why do you think you were able to make that transition from being in a position to simply give the orders, have them executed, uh, as opposed to being more, let's say, legislative in your decision-making? What enabled you to do that? Well, I think it's something, I don't know whether, I, I think to a certain extent we're either born one way or the other. I think we can train ourselves to be able to deal with that. But I think innately you have to have that sense of uh, how you work together with a, with a group of folks. How do you hear all of the opinions and make those work? And I think somewhat we've all seen it. Um, you know, we see leaders that get better at it or not. But I think there are some folks that never kind of can get that right. Mm-hmm. Maybe just one more and then I'm going to hand, hand off to Mike here. Um, you know, the other day we had opportunity to speak with someone that Mike and Jeff know well. That's David Patrick, who was speaking to a group of our undergraduate students. And David was once CEO um, and president of Charles Schwab. And he told the group of students that it was absolutely essential that they understand the language of business, and that is accounting. So I'm just wondering if um, along the way that you found that you had to fill in some gaps in order to uh, rise in your career? Oh, absolutely. And the way I did it, um, you know, because there really wasn't a pathway for physicians. At that time, not too many physicians were going back and getting their MBAs and doing that. So what I took on, so when I was in Cincinnati, uh, my close friend was our chief financial officer, so I said, Phil, I'll, I'll trade you medical knowledge for financial knowledge. Oh, great. <laughs> so we were actually a great team together. and We were on our way to the Society of Midwest Accountants, and we were going to tell a story of our health system and how we came about. And we were about 10 minutes to the auditorium, and Phil goes to me, hey, I'm going to do the medical thing tonight. You do the financial part. And I went to him, Phil, they're going to know. They will know if you're not telling the right thing. They will know in about two minutes if I don't know what I'm talking about. But the point was there. We were able to kind of be able to do that. And I think, you know, from a teaching standpoint, I learned everything about how we put bonds out there, what we do. And I think the receptivity you have to have to learn from your colleagues. Uh, is really fundamental. And, I, you know, that's a great message for a lot of folks out there that how do you get those skill sets? Sometimes those skill sets are sitting right in front of you. And I've always been amazed at how willing my colleagues are to share their knowledge and do that exchange. But that's how my, my accounting, my financial skills, 
And I, I sometimes when we go to Wall Street, you know, with our bondholders, I think I took it as a compliment that they didn't realize I was a doctor. Hmm. So great, Mike. Rod, <laughs> let me let me pick up on that in a little bit of a different way. You probably over your career, especially in recent years, have hired dozens, if not hundreds of people for very senior roles in your system. And in the last couple of years, maybe even thinking about the last dozen or so candidates that you've interviewed for high responsibilities, talk us through what you look for now and then how do you find it in them? Right. So, first of all, I, you know, I'm proud of the fact that we've always been rated over the last few years as one of the most diverse healthcare uh, organizations uh, out there and diversity in, in all of its, all of its shapes. But, you know, we're very proud of the fact that um, we have for a long time been searching for candidates that don't fit just the typical mold. I think the first thing that I look for in a candidate that comes to visit with me are do they understand our mission and values in terms of who we are. And you got to sense that pretty early on, and if that's not a fit, no matter how smart they are and everything else they bring to the table, you have a sense that that's not going to work. I think the second screen that I look for in our senior team and why we've been successful is are you used to working in a large, complicated, matrixed organization where, you know, a lot of it's not going to be very linear in terms of who you're talking to and what you're doing, uh, and are you comfortable with that? And, you know, we need people that are at times comfortable with ambiguity and complexity. So that, that to me is my second, second screen. And then after that, it's um, do they have a passion for what they're going to do and, and, and everything else. Is. Right, that's great. Let me just take that uh, kind of in a, in a future direction. As you hire people now, and let's say they're going to be with you for at least five years, could be better part of a decade. And the way the hospital operates now will be different next year and the years afterwards. Digitalization, one of those factors, but others as well. So here's the question. As you look at people coming in now, again, for senior roles, what do you look for that they may need, not this year, but say a couple years out as the hospital delivery of healthcare evolves and all the changes that we're well familiar with? Exactly. So, you know, the, the dilemma that we have for, you know, hiring people is that we're really not just a hospital organization anymore. We do more than 50. We have 938, 39 clinics that are all scattered around the western United States that have nothing to do with the hospital. Uh, you know, we do health insurance. We do a whole bunch of other uh, skills that were not the traditional hospital administrator role. So what we need is we can train new people uh, in, in the kind of language of the future. But if you've been in healthcare for a long time, we need to know that you're adaptable to doing things other than you're used to. You know, the role of the hospital administrator has changed dramatically over the last five to eight years. And so we need people that have that ability to adapt change, redirect their careers, be able to do different things in our organization. And those are things that, you know, we interview for and we look to to make sure people are comfortable with that. I'm going to remind our listeners that I'm Jeff Klein. This is Leadership in Action, Business Radio, 
uh, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm in the studio tonight with my co-hosts, Ann Greenhall and Mike Useem, and our guest this hour is Dr. Rod Hockman, President and CEO of Providence St. Joseph Health. Um, Rod, one of the things that, that we've, we've touched on, but I want to um, go at it uh, a little bit more directly here, is you know, you've, you've talked about hiring great people and getting out of their way. Um, and, and I also know that, that you believe that great leadership is about great leaders give away their power and teach others how to lead. And so I wonder if you could bring that to life for us a little bit with an example of, you know, either a situation you faced or a situation you saw someone in the organization face where they were giving away power and, and really teaching others how to lead and the impact that, that those, those moves made. You know, for me, you know, you know I, I always laugh when, you know, we have some folks that come up to us and say, well, you're in charge. You're the CEO. you got to just tell them what to do. And I, <laughs> I, I immediately break into laughter. And uh, it doesn't work that way. We're chuckling here, too. Yeah. yeah. Right? You know, it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. And it's about how do you, how do you, how do you work with people to do that and the most successful leaders, when you know, I always look at leaders sometimes in an organization, you know, they want credit for this and credit for that. And I said, you know, the easiest way to do this is give all the credit to the people that are working for you. It's going to accrue back to you eventually anyway. But that is going to be what's going to make them high-performing folks that are going to do what you need to do. And they need to know that you have the confidence in them to be able to go out and do it and get it done. So, you know, in our organization where we've grown, you know, we need folks that are willing to take the kind of chances and know at the end of the day we're going to support them in terms of what they do. And uh, we're building a whole new um, care management company here. And uh, uh, Rhonda Meadows, who works for me, Rhonda knows she has the confidence to be able to go and build that and know that her boss is going to support her in what she's going to be able to do. And we love that she's the head of that organization. She's doing that. A lot of people ask me, well, shouldn't you be in charge of that? And I said, no. It's, you want to have the, the best people that are out there to be able to do it. So the more, the more you give up, the more powerful you become, which is it's, it's almost it's ironic that, you, you know, that that's the way it works. But I don't think that's intuitive for most people that get into leadership roles. And um, we have some, some great examples of that, which we won't get into. Yeah. Well, and, and what I find it really interesting, and I, I, I can kind of sense you walking the path on this, is giving up power um, could have a connotation of, you know, disconnecting or walking away or focusing somewhere else. And, and, and I, I think, I don't want to put words in your mouth here, but I, I think what I'm really hearing is, it, it's about authorizing others to act and staying connected and supporting a, as much as you can. Absolutely. And, and that connection is so important. You know, in my organization, um, I don't have one-on-one -on -one meetings regularly scheduled with any of my key executives. The way we set it up, they know they can get to me when they need me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in this day and age, that's via text, that's via whatever it has to be. But that's really worked well, uh, and they know they have the confidence. But you've got to be available and be ready to be on the spot. And I, I talk a lot about that CEOs only have three things to do. 
because one, they can only remember three things. <laughs> uh, one is they are the quintessential communicator. They communicate the mission, the strategy, on and on and on. You know, if you look at what we do as CEOs most of the day, it's, it's really community. We communicate to our board, the public, to our employees. That, that really, if I look at my time, that's a good chunk of what, I, what, I, what I'm doing. The second thing a CEO has to do is set the strategy for the organization. Even if we have a chief strategic officer, at the end of the day, if you want that title as CEO, you better be able to own up and to be accountable for the strategy. And then the third is that you're in charge of picking the people uh, for the organization. And I think oftentimes that third thing that CEOs have to do really well doesn't get done as well as it should. And if you do the people picking right and the other two things, that's, that's 90%, 95% of what you're spending your time on as a CEO. Rod, I really appreciate that list, one, two, three. And I uh, notice that financial management is not on the list. So what I do with that, I, I put that in, no strategy goes undone without right. a financial plan. So when I talk about a strategy, the strategy is, is fixed in a, a capital plan. Uh, it's a it's a P&L that, that has to work, that fits all together. So when I use the term strategy, I use it in its mm-hmm. broadest sense, but it has to have all of those elements for mm-hmm. a self-sustaining organization that has to be part of it. I almost look at that as a given as part of what we do, but I would put that in that second grouping. That's great. So, so Rod, just uh, this is a big question, but maybe in brief, as you look forward to the healthcare industry, you know, what do you see? Wow. Uh, buckle, buckle your seatbelt. All right, I'm ready. <laughs> it's uh, it's going to be very challenging. And, you know, there are different sectors in healthcare, as you, you guys all know, uh, insurance sector, pharma. We're in the provider sector. So a lot of the profit and loss has been, you know, a lot of the profitability has been seen in pharma right. and in device companies. The balance sheet has been owned by the insurers, and I'm proud to say that the debt and the volatility has been owned by the provider sector. Mm-hmm. And we're going to see more of that uh, as this year goes forward. So I would say, in the words of Dickens, it's the best of times and the worst of times. <laughs> Very uh, good. It's the best of times because healthcare is going to do some amazing things for people. It's the hardest, the volatility that we see in reimbursements. Are we cutting the Medicaid program or not? Are we keeping Medicare? How are we doing that? makes predictability in what I do every day in managing that $25 billion uh, pretty challenging. Great answer. Thank you. Rod, we're getting close to the end of our time, and I want to ask a, a question kind of pulling a lot of strands together. As seen through the eyes of the question as posed by a person who is in a particular discipline or a function, it could be a physician, maybe a nurse, maybe a technician, maybe a software engineer, they would like to take on a life course that is not identical to yours by, by definition, but they would like to become involved in putting health care resources together in a way that really serves the patients and the community. They'd like to become a health administrator, for example, but there are a lot of other routes there too. What advice would you have for them? They're deeply involved as an expert in their field, but now they need to 
master all that it does take to to run something the way you do it? What advice would you have for them? So what I what I would say, I'd use the same advice that did me well is you got to dive in there, and uh, you know we see a lot of our young people that join our organization and are willing to take that chance, but they also have to be willing to try out a whole bunch of different things that are outside of their comfort zone. Uh, so for, for physicians, it's having to manage the pharmacy or having to manage something which isn't necessarily in their comfort zone and learn how to you know, get those skills that are there. They need to become medical directors and understand that. For the tech people, they have to embed themselves in healthcare and really understand what the technological advances are that are actually actually going to make a difference as we go forward. So you got to take that chance to dive in and, and understanding that every experience is a good experience in terms of what you're able to do. But we need to, we need to bring in folks into healthcare that haven't been the traditional uh, business leaders, and that's going to make a tremendous difference as we go forward. But I think it's the courage to take a chance to dive in to try things out and uh, uh, and not be afraid to do that. All right, Rod, uh, we have amazingly reached the end of our time, so we wanted to uh, offer our sincere thanks for joining our show tonight and for this conversation. Yes, well, thank, thank you. you so much. Thanks, Rod. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.